0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Support the podcast through Patreon for weekly writing advice, query, and first-page critiques, as well as exclusive episodes featuring agent and editor interviews. Visit patreon.com forward slash Mindy McGinnis to learn more. Today's guest is Kelly DeVos, author of That Girl on a Plane. Kelly holds a BA in creative writing from Arizona State University. Her debut novel is available now from Harlequin Teen. Her work has been featured in the New York Times and on She Knows and Bustle. Kelly joined me today to talk about landing her agent and how her particular process of being a hardcore planner works to turn the spark of an idea into a novel. Nothing But Sky by Amy Trueblood. 18-year-old wing walker Grace will do anything to get to the 1922 World Aviation Expo, even if it means risking her life every day. A thrilling YA historical publisher's weekly calls, a post-World War I epoch with visceral period detail, available in stores now. Listeners always want to know about how my guests landed their agents, so tell us about your time in the query trenches if you could. My agent is the amazing Kathleen
1: Ruchal from Andrea Brown. I got my agent through an online pitch contest run by the fantastic writer Michelle Hauk. Michelle is the author of a really wonderful series of adult fantasy novels. and She's a tireless advocate for other writers, so you can subscribe to her newsletter and find out about the contest she runs throughout the year. When I decided I wanted to return to writing, the first thing I worked on was this teen detective novel, mostly because I grew up with Trixie Belden and Nancy Drew, and these are the kind of books that made me a reader. Mm -hmm. So I worked on this teen detective novel for a really long time, for over two years. And when I went to query it, I pretty much made every mistake that you could possibly make. It was 140,000 words long when I queried it, which is very, very long for a young adult book. I had this query. Letter that compared it to Twilight and Raiders of the Lost Ark. All this stuff you're just not supposed to do. I did this and I sent this letter out to probably 200 agents. And eventually, I realized this just isn't working. So I started writing Fat Girl on a Plane. And when I was ready to query it, I really didn't trust myself to go right back in the trenches. I didn't trust myself to know if the project was ready to be there. So I thought to myself, one good way to know if it's ready to go is to put it in online contest. So, for anyone who doesn't know about online contests, there are a bunch of different writers on the internet who run agent pitch contests, typically via their websites. Pitch Wars is probably the most well-known of these, where you submit your query and some portion of your book, and the winning entries get reviewed by a panel of agents. And it's a way to get your work in front of agents in addition to the traditional query process. So I've been following Michelle for a while on Twitter, and a few times a year she runs these contests where a group of authors choose some entries to put in front of some really good agents. And the agents, if they like what they see, they read and request your manuscript. And I thought, okay, if my query and my first page can make it past the judges of this contest, then I'll have a good idea that it's okay to proceed and query. Plus, there's always a chance that one of the agents participating will like your entry and make a request. So I entered the contest with the query and the first page of Fat Girl in the new agent contest, which Michelle typically has each summer. One of the most awesome things about doing these kinds of events is that you also get some mentoring. So in my case, the YA writer, Max Wirestone, who wrote The Unfortunate Decisions of Dalia Moss, which is so good. He helped me get my query into shape, and I got some requests. So one of the agents from the contest who requested the book was Patricia Nelson over at Marsal Lion, who was also one of the very kind people who requested and read my terrible teen detective novel. And she contacted me and told me that she really liked Fat Girl on a Plane, but she didn't think that it was right for her list. So she told me that she was passing it on to her colleague Kathleen Ruchal. And then about a week later, I heard back from Kathleen and she asked for a few revisions. And then a month or so after that, she signed me. And I guess to that, I would just add that my agent, Kathleen, who is absolutely the best, is just about to go on maternity leave and is currently closed to queries. But I think Patricia Nelson is open and she is so wonderful. So if you are in the query trenches and you have something really special or something on her wish list, I would definitely send it her way because she's fantastic.
0: It's lovely when you hear from people who have had luck with the online contests. I know that A lot of people are familiar with Pitch Wars, as you were saying. I myself was a mentor twice, and it's been lovely being in that mentor role. It's really rewarding on both ends, I think. I love Michelle's site as well. I actually know Michelle from way back, aspiring writers on a writer's forum called Agent Query Connect, and I actually met Michelle there. And It really is indicative of how small the industry is.
1: Yeah, which is a really important point, too, for anyone that's querying. It's definitely a small community, as you say, and you really do have to keep that in mind because everybody knows everybody. And so it really pays to always be polite and professional to whoever you encounter because you really cannot tell how people are connected, just as we are discovering that we both know Michelle.
0: Yep. And you don't want to find it out because you said, oh, my God, Michelle Hawk. I hate her blog. She's a terrible person. And then you're like, yeah, I actually have an agent because of her. So I know. She's actually visiting my house this summer. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) She's actually my cousin, is the thing. Unfortunately, my mom was right about the thumper advice. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. (laughs) Learned that. Yeah, this is true. So that's a great story about sending out 200 some query letters for a novel that wasn't ready and then recovering yeah. from that
1: terrible query letters like I wish I could go in cyberspace and just get them like hopefully they've all been deleted but I wish I could just get them back sure <laughs> I was querying
0: when we still had physical query letters so I have oh wow. Oh yes so I have a, a box of paper that came back to me and at that time people the agents would simply write If they did request, and sometimes they did, they would send you your query letter back with please send this many pages self-addressed stamped envelope, or they would just send no thank you, or just like one person actually just wrote no in like red Sharpie across my query letter and sent it back to me. Yeah, that was awesome. You used to have your soul crushed by getting a letter uh, addressed to you written in your own handwriting to actual writing. A lot of my listeners are aspiring writers themselves. And I've had people ask me lately to talk to authors more about their process and how they go about getting that idea in their head into a novel form. So if you could talk a little bit about your process, that would be great. So first of all,
1: I'm definitely a plotter. You know, we talk a lot about the plotter versus the pantser, but I am such a hardcore plotter. Mm -hmm. I typically won't start writing anything at all without an outline. So I use KM Weiland's Outlining Your Novel Workbook pretty religiously. It includes a lot of planning exercises that you can do in the beginning when you get your project set up, like character worksheets and arc worksheets and so forth. And then I tend to do a lot of work in the evenings. And what I do is... When I start a project, I have an outline that's five to 10 pages long, start to write my chapters. And when I'm writing, before I leave off for the night, I will create a bullet list at the end of the document or the chapter that is the series of the very next things that will happen in scene. So I know where to pick up when I return to the file the next day. I personally don't necessarily write every day. I do write very consistently. So I write most days. And I have a lot of little rituals when I write. Like I always have a stack of craft books when I sit down to write. And I always carry a journal in case I need to jot down ideas. And I would say those are the main points of my particular process.
0: Mm -hmm. I myself am a complete and total pantser to the degree that I usually do not know how my book is going to end until I'm... Oh my gosh, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, a lot of people are terrified by that. They think that's insane. And it is really But I write linearly. So a lot of people ask me, how do you not create huge plot holes? How do you not write yourself into corners? And the answer is that when you write linearly, everything must follow a logical pattern. And so you can't write yourself into a corner. You can't create a plot hole if you're writing linearly and using logic. In general, no, I do not know how my book is going to end. You mentioned The Female of the Species, that one in particular I did not know how that book was going to end. That's
1: kind of fascinating <laughs> because like early in the story, I feel like that's the only way that it could end.
0: I agree. It is the only I'm way it could end, it. end. But I didn't realize that until I had worked to a certain point.
1: I am fascinated by people that are panthers because to me, that just seems so terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like getting in the car and just being like, we're going
0: somewhere. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. We don't know where you're going. You don't have a map. But for me, there's so much freedom in that. What I end up doing is typically, because I don't know my characters that well, I get to know them by writing them. And usually rewriting or at least severely polishing the first 10 to 15 pages to make the tone match the rest of the book to get the characters consistent because I was just writing mannequins at the beginning and then I got to know them and they became people. So I kind of have to re-inject life When I write this way into the first 10 or 15, once I've finished, people are usually terrified by my process. And I get that. I'm also a terrible teacher because of this. I get asked to come and teach young writers. Guys, I just write, you know, I just learned to write by reading and by watching TV and and being a sponge for story. So when I'm asked to teach or to explain structure, for example, I actually can't. Because all of my knowledge of structure is just innate. I could never explain structure to you. I just do it because I have modeled it instinctually off everything I've ever consumed. And it's interesting because for me personally,
1: I think I almost tend to be an overly structured writer. I feel like my books or my writing has to have like the chapters have to have a certain kind of structure. Or It's interesting to learn more about how different mm-hmm. people work.
0: Coming up, the inspiration for Fat Girl on a Plane, a discussion of the fashion industry world and body acceptance. So let's talk about your book, Fat Girl on a Plane. It is about an overweight girl in the fashion world. So talk about the book a little bit and tell us about your inspiration and how this idea came to you and how you modeled it into a novel. Fat Girl on a Plane is
1: the story of teen fashion student, Cookie Vaughn, and she wants to be the next great designer, but she thinks she has to lose weight to be accepted in the fashion world. So the book follows her across two timelines, before and after a major weight loss that she falsely believes will solve all of her problems. And for me, it was initially inspired by a couple of things. First of all, like my main character, Cookie, I was forced to buy a second seat on the airplane. I'd been working as a graphic designer and an art director in the professional beauty industries and for a couple of fashion-oriented businesses for quite a while. And I was on a business trip. I was on my way to Salt Lake City to do a photo shoot with fashion designer Keith Bryce, who was on season four of Project Runway for anyone who remembers Keith. So I was at the airport and I was standing there, you know, waiting to board the flight and a flight attendant approached me and told me she didn't think I could fit into one seat and then I was going to have to buy another one. So at that point, I was just really humiliated and worried because I didn't even know if they had another seat and I didn't know how I was going to have to pay for it. And so I had this moment where I thought, okay, I just won't go, right? I'll, I'll figure out how to get someone else to take over for me and I'll stay home. Then I was thinking about that and wondering how many times I'd let my weight stop me from doing something I really wanted to do and wondering if there were other people out there who also felt the same way. And kind of because of the nature of my job, I was also thinking a lot about the fashion and the beauty industries and how they supposedly exist to make products that benefit women. But very often their marketing efforts are aimed at making people feel bad about themselves to create a need that has to be resolved with a product. When I got back, I had this epiphany and I realized I just wasn't going to let what other people thought about my weight influence what I did anymore, that I wasn't going to let it hold me back. So I got a lot more serious about pursuing my writing, which had always been my dream. And I went back to school to finish my creative writing degree. You might remember my teen detective story from earlier, the one that Mm -hmm. no one really liked at all. Well, it had this one character in it. The teen detective had a plucky, plus-size best friend who was fashionable and was always making these snarky comments. And in my writer's group, people kept telling me essentially that the teen detective story was boring, but they really liked Mm -hmm. this one character. They would read a book about this one character. So after I had that experience on the plane, I was finally like, okay, you know what? I'm going to write about this one character, and I'm going to put her in a story that's designed to discuss the differences between how our society treats fat versus thin people and how she learns to love herself in spite of all of that.
0: Very cool. So obviously a very personal story for you.
1: I don't think the character is me, but a lot of the feelings that she had were definitely
0: the way that I felt about myself Mm -hmm. when I was a teenager. Body positivity right now, I don't think that we can strike that gavel enough. It's so important. And it's interesting to me, even those of us who are feminists and those of us who are aware of the manipulations of the media and we're aware of how we are expected to look being essentially bullshit and unattainable for many of us. Yet we still feel this way. We still feel this guilt when we can't get that dress zipped up or we don't look the way the girl on the cover of GQ looks. It makes you feel bad. You feel bad about yourself. You feel bad about the way that you look. And that is a horrible way to feel. It's interesting to me. I go to the gym about three times a week. I do yoga and I do CrossFit and I do circuit. And I just started religiously going three times a week here at the beginning of the summer. My gym is wonderful. All ages, all body sizes, all abilities. There are people in my CrossFit class, for example, which is super hardcore working out. And there are women in my class, you know, they're bigger girls. They can run me into the ground. They're in better shape than I am. Incredibly fit. Being fit has nothing to do with your weight. I think that is fascinating. Yeah, I
1: definitely think that there's a lot of unchallenged assumptions and a lot of unchallenged myths and culture regarding weight and health and how those two things align that really need to be deconstructed you know, particularly for teenagers who sometimes they're experiencing these issues in a very direct way often. I just think there just needs to be a lot more nuanced conversation available for them.
0: It's always an extreme. So you can't just be thin. You have to be ridiculously thin. And when you look at like fitness models, they are crazy fit. But there are people that you would look at and think that person, there's no way they can run a mile. It's like, dude, they can run like five. The fitness aspect of having to be trim, having to be svelte in order to be considered fit is just completely inaccurate.
1: A lot of the decision makers in advertising and in fashion, a lot of the people on the business side Mm -hmm. have always been men. And I think that what developed was this kind of brand of marketing where they asked themselves what's appealing to men? Oh, okay. It's this certain set of things and women must want to be appealing to men. So they must want to look like this. And so the image of what a woman should be like is always parsed through this filter of what these men think is the ideal way for a woman to look without a lot of Mm -hmm. consultation from the women. As a woman, how do you want to look? What do you think of your own body? How do you want to live your life? And in order to change that, there have to be women more judiciously exercising their power as consumers and then having more roles on the business side, on the decision-making side, so that some of these products that come to market get marketed appropriately or that they are appropriate in the first place.
0: I think, too, that one of the things that works against us socially is that women are taught to view other women as competition. You're always competing against another woman for something. Usually a man's attention is what the assumption is. You're right. We're told if you aren't the most beautiful woman in the room, which has a standard of what that is supposed to look like, then you lose. And I think we've all been conditioned very well to dislike each other.
1: You're totally right. You know, We as women need to be working on a more supportive community and deconstruct all of that, which I think is really important, particularly when you write books for young people to present them with a world where it's possible that a lot of that stuff isn't happening. But I also think that in terms of body positivity, it's important really to embrace all kinds of bodies. I guess the way that I feel about it is that whatever kind of body that you're in is most important is that you love it. It's working for you. However, we look on the outside should not dictate how we get treated by the world.
0: A few years ago, you know, everybody wanted thigh gap. That was a big thing. My skeleton doesn't have thigh gap. I will never have thigh gap. Yeah, I could lose 100 pounds and I still would not have thigh gap. I will tell you on the photography side, most people do not have a
1: thigh gap, even very thin people. And there is a lot of that that gets added in digitally. So why are we allowing all of we being women, you know, why are we buying these products where companies are doing tons of airbrushing to the model's image and really creating a hyper unrealistic expectation of what people ought to look like? Because models, they're very beautiful. You know, when you see them in real life, they're very beautiful, but they don't have perfect skin. They don't have zero cellulite. They have bodies. Why are we
0: accepting this system of marketing that erases all of that late 90s when I was in college photoshop and the whole idea that everybody got airbrushed and all these perfect looking women didn't actually look like that was kind of a new thing like we were just learning this of course the internet was kind of the new thing and someone in my dorm had found somewhere online pictures of Victoria's Secret models pictures that were the actual shoot and then the pictures that ended up in the catalog And the difference was uh, stunning how much they had changed these women. And so someone in my dorm found these pictures and they actually hung them up inside the bathroom stall. The whole floor used the same bathroom. Even the women that are being sold to us as the standard don't look the way we think they look. No one looks like this. And it was really fascinating. I specifically remember on one of the model's uh, stretch marks she clearly was a mother and had had probably more than one child. And of course she was gorgeous. She was absolutely beautiful, but you could see that she had had children and that they made her look like she had not. So much of that goes on and it's really hard to deprogram yourself to be
1: quite honest. I mean, I have retouched probably a thousand images at this point in time in my career as a graphic designer and it's hard to get out of that mindset once you're there. You know, it's hard to just not think of like, oh, that person has a mole in their face. I'm just going to take it off. Look, they've got some crow's feet. Retouch that out. What I knew I had a problem once was we had like a family photo taken and I really didn't like the way that my arm was positioned. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to take my arm out. The reality of it was that there's nothing wrong with my arm. It was supposed to be like a candid family photo. And what, what has gone wrong with you when you're like, well, I'm just going to modify myself. I think something has gone wrong when that's where you are psychologically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. When I got my author photos done, the photographer, she was great. And she was like, okay, so if you want me to, I can touch these up. The one thing that I did have her do, my hairline. I call them foo-foo hairs. It just doesn't look smooth across my forehead. I have these little hairs that are always like in the process of growing out and they never lay right. I was like, just take this one right here. Just this one. Take out my pores and fix that hairline. Make my skin glow and make my teeth whiter and fix my hairline and and just let me see what it looks like. And she's like, yeah, sure. No problem. Right. And then she sent it to me and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> And then I was like, okay, no, don't do any more because I can see how addictive this would be. And then I think it's a pretty small step Then, like you're saying to seeing your casual photos and going, oh, that's not what I actually look like. Or that is what I look like and I need to change that. And then you're you know, going under the knife and you're doing all these different things to make yourself look like that idealized version. Oh, so scary.
1: I retouched my own author photo and... I was really conflicted about like how much to do it. On the one hand, like I had all of the skill that I've acquired over the years and I thought I could just contour my face. But um, I did not do that. I just did a minimal amount of
0: retouching. It's so alarming. And it's even more alarming is just knowing this, being aware, I know all of these things. And I still, I still look at people that look better than me and think, gee, I wish I looked like that. I really just think it's going to
1: take time and more people challenging these kinds of expectations. But really, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, really where people have to get involved is in the choices that they make as consumers. I think that that's really the only way like, to get through to these companies and these particularly male executives who operate the way that we're describing is to hurt them in their wallet, right? That's the only thing that they really are concerned about. And so when you become aware of companies that don't make any merchandise for plus size people, or don't accommodate a variety of body types, or don't have marketing efforts that are designed to appeal to a diverse pool of people, even if you like what they put out, we've got to just stop buying it. We've got to just send the message of we're unified in that we believe that if you're making products for women or whoever, that you should make a good faith effort to make stuff
0: that accommodates everybody.
1: And if you won't, then we won't purchase from you.
0: So what are some companies that do a good job of providing design and fashion across the size board? One of my favorite
1: companies is ModCloth because I think they make a lot of their products in a variety of sizes. I think a lot of companies are starting to do some really cool partnerships. Like J Crew is doing a partnership right now with Universal Standard. They're expensive. Like I'll just say that they're expensive clothing, but if you can afford them, Universal Standard just makes some really, really good stuff. Their collaboration with J Crew put the Universal Standard quality with the J Crew aesthetic and went up a size 32, and it was stuff that looked very J Crew. So I, I felt that that was really cool. I think the problem is really that there isn't a lot of representation of plus-size people in the companies that are really at the top of the spectrum. Michael Kors, or Chanel, or Tom Ford, brands that are really super luxury. A lot of trends emanate from that level of branding, and there's no representation of, of different body types over there, none whatsoever. So they're making these choices that become trends that are really influential, particularly for young people, but they wind up being trends that aren't super accessible because there's no representation at those levels. So that's where you get like, the next big thing is skinny jeans. Well, okay, but skinny jeans are not great for a whole lot of people for a whole lot of reasons.
0: Lastly, how short stories can help you experiment with new ideas, characters, or methods, and where to find Kelly online. When R.J.'s soul is accidentally collected by a grim reaper, life after death is anything but peaceful. She's got one chance to change her past if she has any hope of getting back her future. But not everyone in the afterlife wants her to succeed. R.J. becomes an unwilling pawn between an archangel with an agenda and death, who would rather catch a wave than help her out. It's a Wonderful Death by Sarah J. Schmidt. You have a BA in creative writing. So talk about that training and how that helped form you as a writer. One of the best things about my particular program was
1: that it really leaned into short story writing, which I think is super helpful, even if you don't envision yourself as a short story writer. I've never really thought of myself as somebody that wants to do a lot of short form writing. But I remember one of my professors essentially saying that if you're going to fail, you want to do it as quickly as possible. So you can move on to your next idea and so that you can move on to something that might work. And that advice has always kind of stuck with me. When I was in school and even later on, I've always, I've tried to do some short form writing to test different kinds of things, different kinds of characters, different styles, different points of view. Short stories can be a lot easier to workshop in some ways, and they can be a really good way of teaching writers what their strengths are, as well as what their weaknesses are. And I think it helps you get used to writing consistently, You're not writing a novel. You're just going to write something that's 3000 words or whatever. And so you can kind of get on with it. So I guess that that's what I found really great about my particular program.
0: I think short stories are particularly difficult. I have really struggled with that particular form. I'm really good at flash fiction. I can do a story and build character and give you an arc in 500 words or less. And and I have a particular skill for that. And then I can write a 60, 55 to 60 to 100,000 word novel. But anywhere in between, oh my gosh, I struggle. I struggle so bad. I cannot figure that out. So any tips for short story writing in particular?
1: Yeah, that's more difficult because I don't feel like I'm a super great writer of short stories. I just think it can be a really good way to practice in my book, for example, it has the alternating timelines. And the way that that started for me is I wrote the story that jumped around in different moments in time. And I thought, could I do this? Could I sustain that device as a writer? And I think if I wouldn't have been able to do it over the course of that short story in a way that people who read it could understand, then I don't think I would have attempted it in my novel. It's good in that way. You know, it's great to kind of think like, here are things that I like to practice. And sometimes you learn that you can't do things. Like, I've always been kind of interested in deadbeat dads, dads that abandoned their family. Like, what's going on on the inside of their brain? Could you humanize that kind of character? Could you write about that kind of person in a way that isn't one dimensional? So, I tried a short story about that. And, you know, the character wound up being cartoonishly villainous, like almost like Vaudeville. For me, like, what I discovered is that no, I personally probably can't humanize that kind of character. Like, So you will not be seeing a novel about a deadbeat dad, I guess, for me, is the moral of that story.
0: I can write a lot of horrible people and give you reasons why they are the way they are and perhaps create empathy, but I could never create empathy for someone that hurts animals or children.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see that because it requires you to kind of get inside their brain. Socrates said, even people who do bad things think they're doing it for a good reason. Can you be in somebody's brain and think about what their good reason is for doing these terrible things? Sometimes I think you can with certain kinds of things. And, you know, sometimes I guess you can't.
0: I don't want to know. I don't want to know what the justification, what the rationale is for something like that, for hurting something that's incapable of defending itself. Like for me, that's, I don't want to go there. I'll go anywhere else. I'll set people on fire. <laughs> Last question. What are you working on now and where can listeners find you online? So right now I'm putting the finishing touches on my YA
1: thriller, which will be out in 2019 from Inkard Press, HarperCollins. And I'm so excited to introduce everyone to my new heroine, Jinx Marshall, who's a teen coder who suspects that her doomsday prepper father might have triggered a national disaster So it's in the process right now of getting a new title, which I hope to be able to announce on social media within the next week or so. Of course, you can find me on my website, which is kellydevoss.us, or I'm on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. So definitely come and hang out with me.
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbell. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting gofundme.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.